Welcome to the SurgeryBots podcast, the show where we explore the latest advancements in surgical robotics and how they're transforming healthcare. Every two weeks, we sit down with a guest who's at the forefront of this incredible space. Surgical robotics is changing the way we approach surgery. Our guests are going to share their experiences and insights, discussing the challenges they've faced and the successes they've achieved. We'll also delve into the latest trends and innovations, exploring the newest robotic technologies and how they're being used to improve patient outcomes. Whether you're a healthcare professional, a researcher, or just interested in the latest advancements in surgical robotics, this podcast is for you. So join us as we explore the world of surgical robotics and discover how these cutting edge technologies are shaping the future of medicine. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the SurgeryBots podcast. In this episode, we sit down with Mike Santek. So Mike is the CEO of a company called BHS Technologies who produce a robotic microscope for microsurgical procedures. And in the episode, we talk about various different partnerships that the company has with other surgical robots, and as well as the challenges faced through COVID, how they've emerged through these, and what the future roadmap of the business looks like. So I hope you enjoy this episode. So hello, Mike, and welcome to the SurgeryBots podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for inviting me. Good stuff. So for the sake of the audience, can you give me a bit of a snapshot CV and tell me about your background? Uh, my background actually is uh, it's just mechanical engineering, so I'm not, um, I, I was working in the medical device field in the meantime since I think 17 years or so, and previous to that I was uh, working two years in construction side machinery field. And then uh, yeah, I started as a mechanical engineer, went uh, to be a project leader, uh, mechanical design manager, head of R&D, head of production for active implants and also for heart catheters. And uh, one day we thought, uh, we get an idea and let's found a company and that's how it uh, went okay fantastic so the company you founded is bhs Technologies. so take me back to the early days why did you decide to find a company uh, found a company and um, and yeah give me the story so what was the story i mean uh so so i i was working for uh, for that company manufacturing hearing implants and we uh were spending many many hours in the lab um, doing research with uh, hearing implants, middle ear implants. And for stuff like that, you need a surgical microscope. And I always enjoyed using surgical microscopes, being in the lab, doing the research, but using the system was, or these, these surgical microscopes, uh, it was always a bit uh, cumbersome. And um, But I, it was okay. It was the, 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 the devices which were there, they were just fine and uh, good, good, for the, good, good for the work. Then I quit the job, went to the other company, um, doing hard catheters and uh, on the technological side. It was, I don't want to say it was boring, but it was, yeah, a bit a bit boring for that company. It was just um, taking some glue yeah, some some glue and uh, some tubes and connecting that stuff and that was it. So um, on the technological side, I didn't enjoy it so much. And um, one day, one of my colleagues were, or former colleagues was calling me and he asked me if I could build a digital microscope and I said yeah well maybe I have no idea um, on the mechanical side yeah sure why, why not because it's just a, a mechanical it's a machine um, of course I can do that but I have no idea about uh, digitalization about software about image processing so I called up Gregor and he's the B in, in BHS um, and we were sitting on my balcony uh, having a beer or two brainstorming of how things could be improved um, and not just building a digital surgical microscope but changing the concept in this we didn't have to worry about any 
product portfolio or anything like that. Um, we thought it would be a really cool idea to take a 3D camera, uh, a robotic arm, and a VR headset, um, assemble these components, and uh, here we go. It's a surgical microscope. You control uh, the robotic arm with your head movements, and the camera always observes the surgical field. Easy task, because you can buy everything, and we, we, we'd we be done within a year, within two, uh, having our class one medical device. And then we said, yeah, let's build the proof of concept. And as it was so promising, and as we have received also the first R&D grants, we said, yeah, then why not quit our jobs and found a company? And <laughs> that, that was basically the story, how it came along. I mean, we, we knew that there, is a, that, that there are surgical microscopes out there. Uh, we know for what uh, application they are used. We knew that they are cumbersome. And um, having the proof of concept, was it, was it was cool from the engineering standpoint. If we would have known at that time how much work and effort it is, <laughs> we probably would not have done it. <laughs> I understand that completely. Still hear that, Mike. You you were having a few beers and came up with the concept. Yeah. So you found it in a in a bar, or were you back at home? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> we didn't find it in a bar, but <laughs> would, <laughs> and uh, we 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 spent the day or the afternoon on on my balcony, um, just brainstorming about it. And I mean, when you we we found it out pretty early that when you do have only a PowerPoint presentation with some fancy renderings and an idea, you are not able to raise any money, and uh, you are not able to convince. Also, um, uh, the, the FFG or AWS, which are um, having huge R&D grants in Austria, and we are super thankful for that. But you cannot convince them um, that your product idea, uh, which is a niche, makes sense. And uh, so uh, that's why we've decided to build a proof of concept, 3D printed, uh, two axes, don't want to say robotic arm, kind of. Um, and ho which which was holding uh, two cameras and was controlled by a VR headset, and with that video um, of how the system moved and and explaining what the problem is and how we are going to solve that problem, um, we got the first grants. And uh, during that time, building the proof of concept, applying for the grants, uh, we said, yeah, then let's let's found the company because they are willing to pay. And uh, now we can't be the ones saying no, no, we we are out. It was just an idea, but we are too we are afraid of building it, or we are too afraid of founding the company. And that was a period of about four or five months or so. And yeah, after that we found the company. Fantastic. So I actually test drove the robotic scope at Arab Health, um, and that's where we met. And although I'm winning no prizes for microsurgeon of the year. It was quite easy for me to pick it up. Um, so it's a non-invasive robot. It's a visualization system, really. But so let's, for the audience, can you build a picture of what the robotic scope actually is and what it does? It is uh, actually exactly what you've explained. Um, it is a, it's a non-invasive device for visual, visualization. Um, so we do, it's a surgical microscope. So we do only observe um, the, the surgical field, uh, a 3D camera records that and transfers that image to our head-mounted display. And with the head-mounted display, where you get the microscopic view, you are able to control the system, um, like changing the viewing angle, 
moving the point of view, changing the level of magnification, stuff like that. So we are just uh, observing with our device the procedure, the surgical procedure, and the surgeon um, does the surgical procedure uh, as he did it or she did it all the time. Um, and we do only change the ergonomics and uh, a bit of the workflow as you don't have to put down the instruments uh, to control the system because you can do all of that with your head. Okay. So, so what procedures can it be used for then? Uh, for example, for ear surgery, mastoid surgery, um, middle ear implants, inner ear implants, cochlear implants, uh, tympanoplasties, uh, also for spine surgeries, disc herniations, plastic surgery, flap transplantations, for example, or hand surgery. Um, every time when you got very small structures, but you need open surgery and cannot use, for example, Da Vinci or CMR system, uh, that's another league, uh, that's another discipline. Uh, so every time you get an open surgery and you need a high magnification, then you are going to use a surgical microscope and you can either choose uh, the, an old or standard system, analog one, whatever, um, or you choose robotic scope and benefit from all the advantages we are having. Okay, so tell me about some of those advantages there. So what we are changing um, is especially the ergonomics um, for using uh, a surgical microscope. So what the science says or what the data says is that four out of five surgeons do have back problems. Um, so depending on the on the, on the paper you're reading, uh, it's between 60 and 87% or something like that uh, complain that they do have back problems. And that's uh, associated with just three hours of microscope usage in the OR. So, it's a, so you, you basically do one procedure per week and your back is uh, feeling bad and uh, that's what we changed because we detach the surgeon from the surgical microscope or from the from the device itself as you wear only the head mounted display um, stay in an ergonomic posture but not in an static ergonomic posture like with a typical or with a standard uh, surgical microscope but you can say uh, dynamic you can stand you can relax your neck um, where the hmd it's which is super lightweight and um, with that uh, system, that the whole issue is solved, um, that you have to adapt to the surgical microscope, stay in a weird ergonomic or unhealthy posture for a couple of hours, um, multiple times a week. And uh, that's that's the main thing we are solving. And uh, also speaking about, or you, you could, of course, use another system, an exoscope, where a 3D screen is used in the, or set up in the OR. But um, as we all know here, um, is that ORs are typically not so huge. Finding a place for one uh, 3D screen or for a second one for the assistant is not very easy. And when you wear the HMD, the display is head mounted. So you don't have to worry about where to place that screen. Um, you need to have the perpendicular view that you have, that get the depth impression, the 3D view. And these are all things you don't have to worry about with our system. So that's what, what we are changing there. Awesome. So how many of your systems are out on the market at the minute in use? Um, it's, it's, we're getting to the about 50 devices distributed, sold uh, worldwide. Of course, uh, the number is changing. So what, what markets are you in so far? Uh, we, we do have distributors um, who are active in about 45 countries, um, which is quite quite a lot um 
especially when you also consider that um, we had COVID uh, in, when we launched the product um, and also in the years after. And um, but but still, we we had uh, distributors who were still able to move forward, do some trials, um, and we were also able to 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 gain knowledge of how the device has been used in the OR. And um, these distributors are in Central East Europe, in Western Europe. Uh, we are in, in the Middle East, uh, also in Australia and South Korea, in the United States. And uh, so that's, that's approximately about it. So you mentioned one, um, one key thing there about COVID. How did that affect business? COVID was, uh, I mean, <laughs> it was, for us, it was, uh, it was just horrible. I mean, um, so we, we founded the company in 2017. We had our business plan. Uh, we knew how long development takes, how many years. We we knew we had to launch the product in 2020 because you got the business plan, you got the cash flow plan. And then there was COVID. Uh, we were launching in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, we were launching in uh, June 2020. And um, the, we had about two, three, four months where life was okay. Also after launching the product. But then autumn came, uh, COVID numbers were picking up. Uh, we had some policies or some regulations in basically all over Europe and the United States, um, which said uh, we are not allowed to go into the hospital anymore um, to demo our product. And um, that was almost two years where we, went, where we and also our distributors were not or hardly able to sell something. And that gave us a really hard time. That that was just horrible. And if we would have known that uh, something like that would, ha would will happen, we would have had another plan. But I mean, these are things that just come unexpected. Well, it, it definitely came unexpected. I was living out in Austria at the time that COVID hit. Um, I was living in St. Anton, which is just up the valley from uh, Innsbruck, which is where you're based. And I know we managed to get a flight out as soon as it hit, and we were told by the police to get out, actually, of our mental department. But the COVID rules, I'd heard how strict they were. So you've got all the sales staff around the world that were affected, but how did it affect central operations in, in Innsbruck? Uh, the central operations in Innsbruck was, I mean, we, we as it was quiet, I mean, uh, production uh, was, was not ramping up, uh, so that was quiet. Um, R&D was super focused um, because there was no, there were no no sales team coming from the market and uh, putting in feature requests and stuff like that. So they were super or they, they were able to focus on the device, improving it, um, getting or imp implementing feedback from the first customers, and making it even more ready for the OR. So that that was a good situation, uh, definitely. Um, we were asking all the people who were able uh, to do home office, um, but. Of, just to protect manufacturing because uh, manufacturing they can't do home office uh, as, as we are manufacturing um, also the zoom lenses internally and the head mounted displays so we need the clean room and stuff like that um, so that that was the, the biggest impact but even after four five six weeks um, the staff was asking us or if they may come back to the office because they are just alone at home not having the possibilities uh, to do home office it's still home and not office and so on um so we decided to leave everyone back to the office and uh yeah get at, at least a little social life yeah absolutely um 
I mean, when I flew back to the UK, it was a completely different story to what had just gone in Austria. It was uh, quite a strange situation, but then everything closed down. So, and a lot of my friends who were left in Austria, I know they struggled a lot more than uh, a lot more than it sounds like your guys did six weeks and back in the office. There was, uh... yeah, we we missed we or the in in Tyrol we we missed some things or uh, the politicians, but that's something I don't want to uh jump in here because uh, that will be an ending story <laughs> yeah let's keep on with the the surgical robotic side of the yeah. politics um so yeah some of some of the partnerships that you guys do at bhs uh, are really interesting because it brings together robotics plus robotics and there's collaborations with medical micro instruments and collaboration with microsure so talk to me a little bit about what those two are microsure is more ergonomics focused and nmi um I can't remember what the, the name of the study that was. Tell me more about those two. So, uh, it was never um, a strategic plan uh, to put something like that up, like um, the, the cooperation or the, the installation we are having in, in uh, Münster, a Fachklinik für Plastische Chirurgie, Hornheide. So it's a plastic department in, uh, in Münster uh, with Professor Kükelhaus and... Uh, he he actually was the one who applied for a um, for a EU grant, I think it was, um, to combine both systems. It's um, going to the direction of digi digitalization uh, of the OR, OR of the future, something like that. So he came up with that idea. Of course, we were supporting it. And um, both of us, MMI and we, uh, were super lucky that that, that grant uh, got approved. And then he was able to purchase uh, both devices. And that was, I think, first time in the world uh, when two surgical robots were combined um, just by one surgeon or one surgeon is the interface for both systems because he's he's wearing our head mounted display controlling our device and holding in his hands um, the instruments from MMI and controlling the second surgical robot and in the meantime he did uh, plenty of surgeries and it's for him it's like uh, it's stand it's, it's it's standard state of the art performing the surgeries in that way it's it's a joy watching that and uh so that that's the the thing with mmi uh, plastic uh, surgery um doing some super micronostomosis and microsure it's basically the same um but just another um surgical robot robot so for, for us for bhs the does not change. It, it doesn't change any, anything if we go with MMI um, or co combine our device with MMI or with the microsure system. Um, and I, I can't explain all the differences between MMI and microsure. So I'm not uh, that much into the detail uh, of of the, these two systems. Um, but for us, it's a really it's it's a joy um, having such uh, installations because. We, we never thought about it, uh, that something like that would happen. Uh, we always thought it's going to be super cool if, if that could happen. And then all of a, uh, all of a sudden, uh, it was just there. So future has arrived. Cool. So uh, actually, I think one thing we haven't really touched on so far is um, we know that it's a digital microscope, but actually the controls of it is hands-free. I think that's what the real unique part of it is. So tell us a bit more about the interface and how the surgeon actually controls the system. It's pretty simple, um, but making it pretty simple, that it's, I think that's that's the art. Um, so you got one foot switch, which is uh, just one single button, not a complicated foot pedal. Um, and I mean, having a, a, a foot switch in the OR, that's uh, pretty common. Um, as you get the bipolars, you get the power tools and so on. 
So the surgeon has that one uh, foot switch. He presses that foot switch. And in the head-mounted display, a user interface is popping up. It's uh, super, super simple, very intuitive. And with your head movements, you control a cursor, like uh, with your hand, the mouse cursor. And um, so by controlling that cursor, you select one of the functions, go back to the center to confirm it. And as long as you press the foot switch, that function stays activated. And then it's everything uh, what you can do is based on what you see. So for in for, for, for one um, function, for example, it's we call it free view. That's when you move to point of interest to somewhere else and explore the surgical field. Um, you see the image, you move your head to the left and the image moves to the right. It's like it's like in real world, um, but a robot controls the movement um, or these small and tiny movements. So super simple to use. Indeed, indeed. And that's why I was so able to pick it up. Within about five to ten minutes of actually using the system, I was able to control it. Um, I'm obviously not a surgeon, so it's definitely intuitive to use. So going back to the, the collaborations then, can you plug into, for example, NLI's sales team or can you plug into, I know Mike Gershaw is not quite at the stage of market yet, but can you plug into those sales teams and, and sell them as a combination product now? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and also MMI has um, put up a OR solution, as they call it, um, also included our device uh, for their OR solutions, also being able to demonstrate uh, how our, how their system could be used. Of course, there are customers, um, surgeons who don't like wearing a head-mounted display uh, or who are in favor with the, uh, with the Olympus Orbi or something like that. So fair enough, uh, they, they can also use these systems. Um, but we are also part of the OR solutions, which makes us pretty, uh, pretty proud. And uh, it's also the other way around, as, as we do have distributors, but also doctors who are asking or who know that installation from, from Hohenheide, from uh, Professor Kücklehaus, and uh, who are asking for, for getting the contact to MMI because they also want to see that setup and um, just, yeah, are, are being stoked. Okay, cool. And that's 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 the that's the collaboration. So there, there, there's nothing um, very specific or, or special on that, um, because you know, also for MMI and Microsoft probably in the future, they also don't want to lock into one uh, microscope vendor because it doesn't make any sense for them. Uh, thinking um, if 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 some surgeon has already bought a brand new whatever exoscope and doesn't need a robotic scope anymore, um, then he should not buy a robotics or have have to buy it. Exactly, and I suppose it works both ways as well. You don't want to just tie up to one robotics company when there's so many emerging companies coming out that you could use your scope with. Yeah, right, right. Same for us. So moving on to more questions about the business then and the business side. So how have you funded the business up to this point? We've talked about a couple of grants, but any other ways of funding? We do have pretty good uh, R&D grants, uh, high tech, uh, especially high tech, deep tech, med tech in Austria. So that's definitely worth uh, applying for those. And uh, FFG and AWS, they do a fantastic job um, with these grants. And uh, that's always for R&D or for the R&D part. You need a co-financing uh, or you need co-financing. And uh, for that, in the early days, we uh, were using our own money and then doing some side projects like uh, engineering and consulting stuff. And afterwards, of course, you're going to start fundraising, searching for an investor, and that's uh, 
or that that investor uh they did the the co-financing um part um to the to the r&d grads and they're with with us since 2018 uh super super uh, good to work with them um and that's that's how we were funding the business and how do you plan to fund the business into the future the ideal case of course will be just uh by by the revenue we are making but we know that we have to speed up uh here and there some things and um when you want to speed up uh, you need a second series um and that's that's the part or that's the plan for now uh just to raise another round uh growth capital and uh to just to stay ahead of of the others um who are playing with uh similar technologies and uh then of course we're going uh we, we are getting or will be getting uh fingers crossed to that point where um it's just all based on on revenue fantastic so you said there's a couple of people producing it like developing similar technologies who who are some of those players uh so i can't tell you all the things because they might be confidential um but as you can imagine i mean there are the digital surgical microscopes out there there are companies also having robotic surgical microscopes like uh, the Escolab EOS, for example, or Synaptive Modus V. And um, for them, it's, uh, in my point of view, a logical next step also to come up with a head-mounted display. Also, also Zeiss has presented uh, at the Kurak in Germany that they also think that uh, head-mounted displays will be the future and not 3D screens in the OR. And uh, so I think it's just a logical next step for many of them. Um, to get rid of the eyepieces, get rid of the huge 3D screens, you know, these 85-inch whatever Sony TVs, and also develop their own HMD and do stuff with their HMDs. But that's uh, something I, I don't know also, and uh, maybe I'm the, the things I know I'm not allowed to tell. Okay. That's understood, understood. We'll tread carefully. <laughs> So historically, yeah. then, what what have been some of the the biggest challenges that you faced as a business? Historically, the biggest challenges, um, I I'd say it was COVID, definitely, um, because that that killed our complete plan. Um, COVID was, uh, yeah, that, that was a big challenge because uh, having having the plan which which worked so well and then having that impact, uh, what yeah, that that was a. A, a big showstopper and then of course afterwards uh, everything which is related to uh, changing the strategy changing the plan uh that that's a big challenge and also another challenge was and that's something we or no one should neglect um or ignore um is to develop an organization um which is ready to be scaled but still stays efficient and um so we went from 2017 um, in February we were three of us, four of us, and um, when COVID started or mid 2020 we were about 50 people, and uh, scaling so fast and <laughs> having to move the office like two times a year, and um, but still also documenting the processes, uh, onboarding people, um, integrating people. Uh, that that's a big really big challenge but i think we we managed it uh, very good but uh, we do also have an excellent team so uh thanks thanks to everyone uh, who is listening from the team and uh did everyone a fantastic job and um yeah th these two things i'd say were the biggest ones okay and in present day then what do you see as either the 
the challenges now or the challenges that you're going to have to overcome in in the next couple of years? Um, it, implementing a disruptive technology, that's always going to be a challenge, but it's also the fun part of founding a new company and developing something like that. So uh, that, that's that's going to be there and uh, we, we are still in the niche and uh, need to expand that niche um, day by day. Uh, then the fundraising also with the with the current uh, situation with uh, economy, Ukraine, Russia war. Uh, it's all, I think there were better times. Um, so the, the, that's also kind of challenging. We we don't worry about supply chains um, because that's something we we set up very well. Um, so yeah, no, nothing to to worry about here. We don't worry about the MDR because we were working according to the MDR since day one. Um, so actually, the challenges um, on, on that, so we, we are not, not afraid of them. Okay, cool. So you have the robotic scope that's currently out on the market, it's being sold. I know that you do a surgical drape, but what else is in the innovation pipeline and what other supplementary products are you looking to develop? <laughs> I can't. I can't tell you our R and D pipeline. Uh, but what I can say for sure uh, is that uh, the robotics scope um, that's a huge playground uh, to develop more stuff. Um, the drape, it's just a drape. It's not nothing really uh, fancy also for developers. And uh, but but the robotics scope itself, um, as it's you you could say fifty percent of it is hardware and fifty percent is software. And um, with the hardware we are having and also with the system architecture, um, we are able to integrate uh, other or more information. We do have a very powerful computer, very powerful GPU. Um, so there's a lot of processing power in the, in the device. And uh, especially on the software side, uh, it's, it's a huge playground for our uh, R&D team um, where we can enable other things like also AR, or getting uh, into the direction of AI in the future, um, connecting other devices like surgical navigation, also integrating stuff like that. It's, it's really cool. Uh, and it's also just an obvious next step or also being able to control other devices. But I mean, uh, that's uh, getting more into the uh, direction which I'm not allowed to tell today. Um, but um, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a huge playground and um, the robotic scope as it is today uh, works as a surgical microscope but development, as we all know, never stops. And uh, after the first and second generation, there will be a third one. And maybe also some complementary products uh, which are being used uh, with robotic scope. Or we, what we also did is to just take the HMD itself, because it's also a device, uh, can be a medical device, connect to that uh, to an endoscope uh, and use it uh, for endoscopic procedures. Because in the endoscopic procedures you, you you get the same issues with ergonomics uh, and uh, being able to see the t uh, the, the screen and so on so you, even something like that could happen in the in the in the future that we are just taking pieces of our technology and uh, use that for other devices either standalone or in combination with something else okay so five years down the line what's your vision for the business what's the high level vision <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, five five years down the line from today on, I I 
so the, the 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 vision or or the the big idea is that we we grow further, uh, that we do have a reasonable amount of of revenue. Uh, we see many robotic scopes being used on a daily basis uh, in the ORs, and uh, this would be just a um, a consequence because of that that the robotic scope got more of a mainstream product and it's common using a. HMD with a uh, surgical microscope, so that, that's that's the that's the vision. So to to move from the niche product, which has the sweet spot for some surgical procedures, uh, to the mainstream mainstream product um, being used for every surgical procedure uh, or for every microsurgical procedure, and then what I said previously regarding revenue and so on and growth, that's just the the logic consequence. Okay, and so at the minute you said forty five distributors. Um, are currently registered. So, are you planning to grow through distributorships, or are you planning to build a direct sales force as well? Um, I, we 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 gotta go with distributors um, because, especially as you know, uh, hiring people it's hard, and uh, employing uh, your own sales force for all the countries it's super expensive. And I, I think we would not be able to one side afford it, and on the other side also to manage so many teams teams and grow so fast uh, as we can with distributors and uh, the the other thing is um, when you don't have the contacts uh, in in the countries um, or know the ministry of health or know how the procedures are um, and don't know who the people are who have all the connections it's super super hard to build up a team and sell a product that's why we we, we, we prefer um, evaluating our distributors, um, having a close partnership and uh, let them participate also uh, on the device and we also participate on their knowledge and, and connections. Okay. Do they come with any challenges so, to grow through distributorships that maybe you wouldn't with a direct sales force? Uh, yeah, yeah it's, I think it's more or less the, the, the same challenge or kind of the same challenge because um you, when you when you build up a sales team or or any team um and you hire people you can hire the wrong people and you find that out later maybe a year later that they are not performing so well um you have to take the difficult decisions um redo some things and with distributors it's going to be actually the same of course um when you sell through distributors the margin is lower you also have to educate them but uh, there is no costs directly with uh, running them and uh, that's in our stage for our plan the way easier one uh, than hiring directly of course we do have direct sales in austria germany and also restarting the business in the united states um, because we also need to learn how you can sell at the device and um, then partner up with our distributors and find or hear their thoughts and develop the best way um, to, to sell it Okay. And so you mentioned a couple of key geographies there. Obviously, you've uh, got direct in a couple of locations. You're looking to launch the US again. Um, are you planning to take on some of the um, some of the markets outside uh, Europe and the US? Are you looking towards Asia, the Middle East, Africa? Yeah, sure. sure. As a Middle East, uh, there's already a distributor there. Uh, that was also the reason why we've met at Arab Health um, a year ago. Uh, so we do have a distributor. They are also covering all the the, the smaller countries uh, around Dubai, 
or the the United uh, uh, Arab Emirates. Um, we also going further further to the east, um, evaluating distributors in, for example, on the Philippines, Thailand, uh, India, China, um, because it's the huge huge markets and. Um, they also need robotic scopes. <laughs> it's obvious. Of course, we're gonna go there, and um, only focusing on on Europe and on the United States. Um, yes and no. Um, so, my point of view, it doesn't make sense. For example, if we would just focus on Austria and Germany, um, because uh, then we would have a product for just these two countries, and uh, we would never have the chance also to to get the feedback and all the procedures done. Uh, what we need um, to do the next steps um, when we only stay in two countries. Indeed. Um, so let's move and start talking about the more general industry then. So um, I understand that there's, this isn't an invasive surgical robot, but the and it's so unique. So we're going to have to talk about some things that aren't as similar, but the actual surgical robotics industry, what do you see as some of the future trends and what do you think it looks like from a, a technology perspective? So you mean from the surgical robotics uh, from that industry? Um, what what we see is uh, many many projects, but that's I think what you also see uh, many projects which are invasive, uh, getting into the direction of the Da Vinci um, or into the direction of the CMR system, um, or like like also the distal motion and and so on. There are many many more coming up. I don't know all the di all the differences of, of those systems, but um, that, that's that's one one general trend uh, no one can uh, ignore. Um, but on the other hand, uh, what what I think is super exciting um, because when when you talk to someone um, either in the field or or in the medical device field or also outside the medical device field, and you, you speak about surgical robotics, they always say, "Ah, it's the intuitive system." Uh, okay, so uh, that's that's. Uh, seems to be the pretty one uh pretty uh, pretty only one which is which is known but i think that um having more specific robots for specific procedures um that's i think the more interesting part and not just thinking about laparoscopic uh surgical robots for example uh that that robot uh, to insert a cochlear electrode that's pretty cool um also improving improving uh patients uh, residual hearing um, stuff like that um, or also interventional uh, systems also in Tirol um, they're building uh, one tiny robot for interventional um, surgical uh, procedures uh, and biopsies stuff like that is I think also very very interesting and the trend um, there definitely it's um, uh, to, to analyze uh, the data which is available AI will also be there or will be will get stronger and stronger to support doctors and uh, also to support um, surgical robots okay. so there's likely going to be people out there who want to develop their own surgical robotics company they might have the idea to develop some kind of high technology products what advice would you give to someone who's at that early stage working in a company has a napkin sketch and on the balcony with their friends what advice would you give to someone like that <laughs> This, I, I think everything what I say now is just wrong. Don't do it. No, uh, be be. Uh, usually, don't be afraid of of, of going that path and uh, plan for not that one extra mile. Plan for more extra extra miles. 
Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a it's a getting uh, more and more competitive field. Um, as as we know that there's so many uh, projects in the last couple or few years uh, got FDA approval, got C marked, and so on. So it's getting uh, more and more competitive. So uh, if if someone thinks uh, to move into that direction, then uh, building the the next uh, intuitive uh, Da Vinci, uh, then I think everyone or the one who does it uh, has to exactly know the, the the weaknesses of the other devices. But I got that's 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 true for every product you're going to develop. And uh, when you decide to uh, go into the direction of, um, of developing one super specific robot for one super specific procedure um, then you gotta involve um, many surgeons as soon as possible to evaluate if the idea really makes sense and uh, if it's gonna be used for um, an from, from an audience which is big enough um, who is also willing to pay uh, the bills and yeah something like that would be the uh, recommendation if it makes sense and don't be afraid of going that path it's a lot of fun a lot of pain <laughs> cool good stuff and how about people who are looking to enter into the industry so not not founding their own companies but people looking to enter at maybe an academic level or moving from the wider medical devices market and moving to a high technology robotic product um, yeah, apply for the jobs, uh, come to BHS, we got some opportunities for you. <laughs> that's, that's the advice here. Um, no, I mean, you, you gotta learn, you gotta learn on the job anyway. It's, um, doesn't matter in what position it is, uh, if it's in the R&D department or if it's sales or marketing, uh, or also very, very important, uh, job also here at BHS is clinical application because someone needs to to teach how our system or a surgical robot is being used uh, during the procedure um, especially in the first cases because it's not obvious um, how the system's going to work and of course the, the training procedures um, but still that support is needed and um, going going into the direction coming from another field um, or not from a, such a high-tech uh, field um, just just do it just do it it doesn't make any sense to be afraid of of that high-tech space and uh it doesn't make any sense being afraid of of surgical robotics um i'm sure 100 percent of the the companies out there they do have excellent training programs uh so that starting in such a company is uh is is, is a um i don't want to say easy but possible okay and so how do you feel about being able to support your um, plans for the future. Do you think the talent exists in the market at the minute? Are there enough people coming through your pipeline wanting to join BHS Technologies? Yeah, it's it's okay. It's okay. So we do have um, we do have uh, the MCI, which is a, a university, private university. They do have a medical device or medtech um, course, um, and also e even previous to that. Uh, so Innsbruck is not a bad place um, to recruit. But of course, uh, could be more, um, especially on the regulatory affairs side. It's uh, not easy to to uh, hire someone, or also to find the right people, uh, because you don't want to have the internal police, um, which is, uh, yeah, slowing things down. Uh, that that's that's pretty tough. But on the developer side, uh, also manufacturing, uh, if you think about that, uh, that that's that's okay with us. Um, it seems that we didn't do everything wrong. 
So um, you, you mentioned one thing there, regulatory affairs. And what has been your regulatory pathway so far and how easy you be founded to gain regulatory clearance? Uh, so the pathway uh, was, so we, we had one, one uh, former colleague who was taking care about all of that. And uh, as it is just a medical device class one in the EU and also in the United States, our regulatory pathway is pretty easy because we don't have to do a clinical study. Um, and we can outsource the clinical evaluation, for example, which uh, is a big effort to, to put together. Uh, but that's something we can outsource. And uh, all the other things in validating the product uh, can be done by developers uh, or test engineers. Um, and then uh, as the company is ISO 1345 certified since um, the sec first year, since 2018, uh, we do have all the processes. We are getting the technical file together and compiling all the documents. Uh, so this this is, for us, it's pretty easy um, to achieve the CE mark and do the 6601 testing externally. Uh, according to CB scheme um, for FDA listing, it's also just a registration of the product. And in most of the countries, um, for us, it's just registering the device and then and, and we are there. Um, that's a different game um, for class 2A, B or class 2 devices in, in the States. Um, and um, entering India uh, or China, um, that's a bit bigger effort also for class 1 device. Uh, so. The pathway here um, is just to uh, work with a distributor who knows all the details of the regulation of how to uh, submit the technical file, how to do type testing, that they all get the contacts to the to test houses and so on. So that's that's a pathway here, and we do only support the product um, so that they have all the information uh, they need from the technical file to submit. Okay. And so to close off the podcast for today, and what I want to know is, what do you think are the three top technologies and that we're going to see in the surgical robotics sector in the future? The three top technologies. That's a tough question. I didn't think about that. <clears throat> Just give me a second. Um, what's, what's going to support um, in various... Uh, or for various uh, robots and um, uh, functionalities, it's it's definitely going to be AI. Um, that's that's going to support um, e even if it's just a part uh, of the of the whole device, which is supported by AI. Um, AR, augmented reality. Um, that's also a thing which is uh, what what we also see and what we are facing. Um, having augmented reality so that you see more, get more information um, to the uh, into the, as we call it, the microsurgical cockpit, um, so that also uh, the surgeon has all the information needed, or maybe also a bit more. And uh, the third one um, is connected devices. Um, so that's also something where I'm 100% sure, which is uh, picking up more and more. Uh, that there is in the future is going to be a maybe a standard interface or an interface so that uh, you're able to connect uh, various devices uh, so that again not also the devices are able uh, to to uh, collaborate a bit more than it's just uh, today having side by side one and the other device of course they're connected over the pack system but uh, not in a way that they are communicating communicating um, with each other controlling functions uh, and and stuff like that.
Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast, Mike. It's been a pleasure to have you and hope you had a good time as well. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me, Henry. Thank you.